I don't know about you, but every time I read this book, I, I get something from it. Yeah, it's very rare that you come across a book that actually applies to everyone. It's an everything to everyone type book. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Hi, I'm your host, Jim Huffman, and today we're diving into another episode of our special series called Iconic Reads. It's a working title. In this episode, we're breaking down a book that's not just a personal favorite of mine because it's the start of the year. It's actually a game changer for anyone looking to enhance their productivity and success. What is it? Atomic Habits by James Clear. It was just number one, again, on the New York Times bestsellers list. This book isn't just about habit habit formation. It's a guide to understanding the mechanics of lasting change and the power of small, consistent actions. As business owners and entrepreneurs, we're constantly in pursuit of growth and efficiency whether it's improving our decision-making, optimizing our daily routines, or fostering a culture of continuous improvement with our teams, the principles and atomic habits offer the roadmap to pull that off. So we'll explore how additive habits are better than ones as far as taking them away, the concept of habit stacking, which is my favorite, and the compound effect of small changes that can revolutionize the way we approach business and personal growth. So whether you're a seasoned entrepreneur or just uh, starting out, join me as we unpack the insights and strategies from Atomic Habits that can help you build the right habits to grow your business or your personal goals. So let's dive in. I brought in my co-founder, Jonathan, to get into the conversation as well. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. So Jonathan, who is James Clear? How would you describe him to somebody? So I actually started reading James Clear when back in 2012 when he was still doing guest blogs for brands like Buffer. And he's been uh, a very interesting character because he's been writing about habits and he's been focused on that topic solely. And we've been, I think one of maybe two or three thought leaders on that topic. A lot, or wrote a book, uh, went from blog Took his audience, wrote a book, launched it, and I think it's been the bestseller. God knows how long now. I think I don't know how many weeks exactly, but really, he's really set a, a record in the self-help genre, and now is a thought leader in habits and everything around habit creation and breaking. So he's created a remarkable career for himself through that. Yeah, he's a very impressive fellow. Number one New York Times bestseller with Atomic Habits, fifteen million copies worldwide translated to 50 languages. It was just this past year, the number one book on Amazon, even though it was released around like 2018 or 19. So the book's got legs and it's working. And one thing we wanted to do today is, I don't know about you, I I read, I process a lot of content, podcasts and books, but I do not retain it. So the goal is, how can we go through some of our favorite books and break them down? And this is why I think you and I, it was a no-brainer, what was going to be on the list. And we're recording this in January. And we're at this time of, oh, new year, new year, to think through goals and systems you want to do for the year. 
So I think the timing is right to get into Atomic Habits. Plus, people don't know, but you are officially off the market as of today. You are a, a spoken for man. And so, you know, I think a lot of first women listeners are very beside themselves. But, you know, you, you've got a, a family now. You, you need to run. And so you need the right habits for it. So so there we go. The, the timing is perfect. I didn't know it was possible to transition from habits to engagements. Uh, interesting, Jim. I don't know how you pulled that one off. It was a very big stretch that might not have landed. But the the format I wanted to go in is let's we kind of touched on who James Clear is. We'll start at a high level with an overview of a book because someone could easily put this into the category of self help or something they they might not be as interested in reading. But I would say this is a book that is packed with tactics and frameworks, things that are really helpful because there's nothing worse than when you get a book that has a cool title and you're halfway through it and you're like, I can't get anything else out of this book. This book should have been a blog post, but this one is the complete opposite. It is good from start to finish. Even leading up to this podcast, I've read this book three times. I was telling myself, I don't need to read this book again. And I get it. And I was reading it. I was two chapters in. I was like, oh my gosh, this book is adding more value now than it did initially because I'm looking at it from a different perspective or I'm hearing it in different ways. But but I don't know about you, but every time I read this book, I, I get something from it. Yeah, it's very rare that you come across a book that actually applies to everyone. It's an everything to everyone type book, meaning like everyone has to deal with habits, whether it's creating them or breaking them all age groups, all genders, all types of people. So I think that's why it has universal appeal has been translated to all those languages. And it's one of those books like, you know, Seven Habits of Effective People that you have to constantly revisit. Like I read that book at least once a year, and this is going to be one of those as well, but you just have to, and you always keep on your shelf, you give to people and the lessons are always true and, and uh, you know, useful at all times of life. So for sure. Yeah. So at, at a high level, well, actually, we'll talk about some of the categories of the book. You know, there, there are 17 chapters in this one. It talks about the power of habits, how they don't add, but they compound, which is a theme I want to get into. It talks about building better habits, how to build micro habits to lead to the big thing. It talks about before even creating your habit, it's around coming up with your identity and the habits around it. It talks about it's easier to do a habit that's additive as opposed to taking one way and then goes through even goes to the this category of you know advanced level of habits and how to do this the right way if you want to be someone that's not good at something but someone that that's great at something but for me it's it one of my big takeaways was it's not about your goals but it's about your habits because I'm kind of sick of goals. Like I write goals, 12 months go by, I look back, I didn't accomplish any of them. And it's this process that is, if you're not doing it in a structured way, it can be pretty deflating. But if you don't go after goals, you go after habits or systems, you will actually obtain, like achieve them. So this year, yes, we've done goals for the business and I've done them for myself. But right next to them, I put the system. If I'm actually going to pull it off, that way I, I have the chance to, to make it happen. But for me, those were some of the overarching themes that I got from the book. Yeah, I think the biggest one for me actually starts with the title, like Atomic Habits. What is it? It's like the 
the atomic level of a habit or like a single habit is the loop, the cue, the craving, the response, and the reward. And I remember what's his name, Chris Duhigg, forget the name of the book, but he also wrote a book on habits and had his own version of that. And it's fundamental, like this is the fundamental like atomic building unit and everything and it comes from this. It's like, how do you optimize your cue or your environment, which is what he really talks about, your feelings or responsibility and your rewards to suit your needs and your goals or your life vision. So I think that's the fundamental thing that this book delivers on. And I think everything kind of builds off of it, but that's, that's the most interesting part for me for sure. So we can kind of get into some of our, our favorite quotes from the book. Like for me, the one that really resonated was around, you do not rise to the level of your goals. Do you fall to the level of your systems, which is exactly kind of building upon what I was saying before, where if you don't have systems, like none of this is, is going to happen. So that is one that's really stuck with me from the first time reading it to the last time. And I have to constantly remind myself of that. I mean, it was like wrote on my little whiteboard, the year of systems, just to make sure I focus on that rather than putting some pie in the sky goal out there. Yeah, I think that's a good one. What comes to mind is the whole walk slowly, but never backwards. And that go that comes from like always making progress. And if you fall off the wagon, for example, you never want to, you know, repeat that since you're breaking the cycle. And this is all the whole concept around repeating, but being focused mostly on repeating that thing that you want to do rather than attempting perfection on day one. So if your goal is to hit like 10 push-ups a day, maybe that repeatable ask or action is just doing it once. That simple, hard to miss, hard to procrastinate on task. that just helps you build the repetition before you finally build it to some perfect final vision. So that, that one really stood out to me. Yeah, I love the idea of doing habits where you make it easy or what he calls the the two-minute rule. Because you could have this, this big goal or habit of get a six-pack and work out one hour a day. That That sounds very daunting. So he gives this framework of how can you make it easy? So instead of saying, hey, I want to work out for an hour a day, instead, the night before, you lay out your clothes and say, hey, tomorrow I'm going to put on my shoes and go to the gym for one minute and do one push-up, right? Because like, hey, anyone can drive five minutes to the gym and do a push-up. And then, hey, I've done it. And then it can start to snowball where, hey, you're already there. You did one push-up. I'll do 10 push-ups or I'll work out instead of five minutes. 15 minutes. And this is something that that I have taken on where I will literally put a goal of like just at lunchtime before you lunch, drop down and do a push-up. And if I'm down there, I'm probably going to do more than one push-up as opposed to telling myself, hey, do 100 push-ups a day because then I'm quickly going to brush that off because I'm like, no, thank you. I don't want to do it. So that, that that framework or quote around the two-minute rule and make it easy was one that I, I kind of think about every day. Yeah. And then the other big one for me is as part of the loop that I mentioned earlier, the cue craving response reward. Like the most important thing that I've experienced in my life is actually the cue, the environment. And I mean, you can think about your, like your environment right now. Like where do you have your charger, right? It's like when you walk into your home, you see your charger, like that's where you always put your phone that triggers that behavior. And there are other things that you can use this for, for better or worse to create the habit. You'd make it more obvious, easier for you to, you know, use that cue to trigger you to do that action. And to make it harder, it's creating friction. It's either removing it entirely so you don't see it, so it doesn't trigger you, or adding friction, so steps so that your smarter self can step in and, you know, taught you out of doing that thing. So that, I think that's 
the easiest and probably the most important step in building or moving habits for better or worse. Because without that, I think you're kind of fighting a lost battle. You're trying to get rid of a habit once you've been triggered by it or you've seen the cue and that's almost always a losing battle. So I that maybe stood out to me in a big way. The one that he says around design your environment because the visual cue is the most is the most impactful, most powerful cue, which sounds obvious, but I didn't really think about it. And I'd, I'd be interested to see what you have done. So for me, by my bedside table, I now put my journal with a pen. So I'm like, oh, I should probably write something before I go to bed or in the morning. So it's so it's there. Even on my phone, making it invisible so there isn't the visual cue. I've deleted my social media apps. I'm in a, a January, they have like uh dry January for no drinking. And I'm still having wine this month. <laughs> for me, it's it's dry social media where I don't have social media on my phone. And it sounds so simple, but it's like, just remove the things, make it invisible. But like, what are some things you have done with that framework? So I've never bought a TV in my life. And it actually reminds me of the Jim Rohn quote that, you know, rich people have libraries, poor people have big screen TVs. And it's like, if that's your number one trigger, and actually if you think about it, your living room is the biggest room or biggest space in your home. You come in and the first thing you see is the TV, you'll be invited. You'll be automatically triggered to watch something, even if you didn't intend it. So that's definitely something that I've thought about. The other one, which is a maybe more advanced version of like designing your environment is like creating a cue, like an like accountability partner. So I have trainers for, you know, different sports that I do. And just having them around, having to visit them or them coming to visit me, I think just triggers me to to exercise, even when I don't want it. It's like this inevitable thing that's going to happen in the day that it forces me to be disciplined and do that thing. So that that an easing of accountability partners, a cue is actually very important. Yeah, I have that in two ways. One is with my workout studio. There's a few different ways. One is my wife and I work out together or we'll take turns. So if I miss, she would be like, come on, slob, get it together and, and go jump in there. The other thing is you have to book these sessions in advance. And if you don't go, you get docked for it. So I'll make the decision on Sunday, I'll book in all the workouts. And then there's this stigma. If I cancel, you know, it's going to cost me money. You're going to have these other consequences from it. So those have, have been pretty big. And then the other thing is with my Apple Watch, it shares my activities to a friend who constantly sees my workouts and will comment on it and I'll comment on his stuff. And at first I thought, I was like, oh, this won't have any impact on me. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, Chris is going to sit and work out this week. Like I need to make sure I get my workout in. And he's probably not even looking or caring, but in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking through that. So the, the accountability is huge. Even when I was writing the book, I, I took forever to get that thing out. And then I sent to the email list, the book's going to launch this summer. And then people would follow up and ask. And I was like, oh crap, I need to make sure I, I hit this deadline. And that cannot be overstated, the impact of having some sort of public or shared accountability. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other one I think that, that's really stood out to me is the whole temptation bundling. So let's say there's something that you already like to do, like in your case, it might be adding wine this month, right? And there's something else that you have to do. It's kind of pairing those two. So it's that action that you like doing is almost a reward for the thing that you don't like doing. And this actually just goes back to the big concept, overall concept that it, the, the final step in that whole loop is the reward. So always rewarding yourself to make it more satisfying and 
making like essentially giving yourself a dopamine hit after doing that thing, that 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 habit that you want to build, and just makes it more likely that you'll continue doing it because it's a positive experience at the end. Yeah, I need to think through some of that reward because even with the workout, the reward is at the end where you feel good, your heart's pumping, you got like the endorphins flowing, and you, you're you're in a better mood, and and that is totally worth it. Worth it. And the, the other thing I like is this idea of prime the environment. So before I go to bed, I lay out the workout clothes. I have my Apple Watch charged. Shoes are out. My little water bottle's ready. So I have no excuse when I wake up. Everything is there to to make it easier. Even with my office, I probably need to be a little bit better about that. But the, the environment and the visual cues are, for me, the biggest things. Like I said, I'm a little protein shake. I hide my kids' snacks. We put them as far away in the cupboard as possible. Because if not, I will devour their little fruit snacks at 3 p.m. when I'm stress eating. But th- those are things around your environment that, that have a big impact on me. Yeah, you know, let me tell you a story, actually, that my mom used to tease me about. It's I can't control myself around chocolate. I love it so much that if I buy, let's say, a big chocolate bar, I might get two pieces, but I have to throw away the rest. Like it has to go in the trash <laughs> because if, if I leave it there or I know where it's stored, I'll go back to eat it. It might not be today, but it will happen this week. So that's like literally adding maximum friction, which is literally removing it, throwing it away, putting it in the trash. So it's that level. And like, so your work environment definitely matters. You know, those creatives who had like those cabins in the forest, they went to with no internet, no electricity, all they could do there was literally put pen to paper because is either that or you stare at the wall for six hours, right? So in that level of, you know, controlled environment, the environment designed for only that. Alex Rosie actually uses a closet in his home as an office and it doesn't have a window and he just stares at a wall and the computer screen in front of him and that's all he can do. So it's that level of engineering is required. Otherwise you will, you will be, you know, you'll end up doing things that you don't like. Also another example that just came to mind is like, I remember listening to an interview why Warren Buffett decided to live and work in Omaha all these years away from New York, the domestic capital of the world. And it's just that it's like you're removing all the triggers that would invite him to behave like the people that he doesn't want to behave like, right? Everyone's trading every day. If he's in that environment, he's going to be sucked into it. But when he's in the middle of nowhere in Omaha, it's it's easier to stick to your lane and do what you do best. So those are like, I think, extreme examples that came to mind. Yeah, I, I need to do that. And whenever we went to the tiny office in Victoria, their office isn't an office downtown. They had this sick mansion on the water where they work. And just having that environment away from the hustle and bustle, this amazing neighborhood overlooking the water, it makes you one sitting differently. And you're probably in a more creative open space when you're in that environment as opposed to the traditional cubicle setup or, or whatever that would be. Interesting. What for another one, this is probably my favorite quote or my favorite phrase from the book that I use the most is this idea of habit stacking, right? Looking one habit that you already do with an additional habit that could maybe, you know, help you hit the goal that you want to have, right? Because if you're already doing one, you drastically improve the likelihood of doing this other one because it's associated with it. Like, so for example, with my kids at night, we know we're going to brush our teeth. So the whole like ritual of going to brush our teeth, we started to habit stack. Okay, before you brush your teeth, put your toys away, brush your teeth. And then we read a book, right? We're trying to do a sandwich stack. 
like between that main thing. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but that's one that I do with the kids. For me, I, you know, I have to do content every week with the newsletter, but I knew I wanted to do this other type of content. So whenever I go into content mode, I, you know, I'm going to write the newsletter. I also want to write a blog post and do this. I batch work and habit stack those things together. But that's something that I, I think I probably do the most from this book. I don't know if that resonated with you as well or not. Absolutely. It's like, if you've already spent so much time and energy in building one habit, why not leverage it to stack other things on top of it, like on top of it and around it. So you're using that habit to trigger as the cue for other habits, right? And the example that comes to mind is like my morning routine. It's like, I always go to grab water in the morning and I have my vitamins, fish oil and things like that right next to it. So it triggers me to, to take those things. But if I didn't have that, I would have to create a separate habit for taking those vitamins, which obviously would it be easy. That's extra work. So you're totally right. I think habit stacking is like the, that once you become a master at building and breaking these habits, it's like the, you become a black belt that takes you to a different level with stacking. Yeah. You put something in here around falling in love with the boredom that comes with habits over time. What, what was your takeaway from that? I mean, yeah. So it's like, it's not a fun process. And if you're, this goes back to the whole systems idea, right, Jim? So instead of setting goals and you have to, you're having to do these things on a daily basis for a very long time to achieve any results, you will have to deal with boredom. There's one example that I remember he shared. I don't think this was in the book. It was actually one of his blog posts from a long time ago. It's about Milo the Lifter, the guy who turned out to be one of the strongest people in the world back in like ancient Greek days. He used to lift a little bull, like, since day one, when it was very easy to lift. And then he kept doing that every single day to the point where he could lift this massive bull one day and everyone was, thought, was shocked and like, how, did, how the hell did you achieve that level of strength? And his story was, he would just lift it. As, as the, the little bull got bigger every single day, he would, he would get stronger as well. So that's, that's like falling in love with boredom, the repetition. And the idea of the repetition is almost always better than perfection because yeah, it takes time and without repetition, you'll never achieve that final outcome. Yeah. I've, I've heard Arnold Schwarzenegger. I've heard Kobe Bryant talk about that, like falling in love with the boredom and the monotonous process of, of your habits. Right. Cause if you're a basketball yeah. player shooting a thousand shots per day and shot 767, you're like, I'm good. I've made a lot of these. I could probably call it a day. But just to embrace, no, this is the process, this is what I do, it, it really starts to compound, right? And that, that was the other big yeah. takeaway was, you know, when you read a lot of things and you start to see these themes being connected, as I'm reading things around like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and getting rich slow and compounded interest, that was the big takeaway from this book. Like these habits don't add, they multiply and it really starts to compound, right? So similar compound interests in finance, small consistent habit and change can lead to substantial results over time, right? The kind of get rich slow approach emphasizes the power of small consistent actions in creating significant personal growth and success. And it's funny because you can, I'll, I'll be working out and you don't see any results, any results, you're like, this isn't working. And then over time, like, oh wait, this is starting to work. I think that's a huge part of business. Like we've been a growth hit for a while now and the day-to-day -day of doing what we do, it feels like we're, you know, two steps forward, two steps back. But then as we look out over a year, it's pretty impressive. We've 
you know, doubled the team, doubled revenue, all because these little things we've done have started to, to compound. And it makes me think of the habits I want to form, which are the ones that if we take a long-term view can have the biggest impact, right? Almost doing this like habit ROI assessment of on where you could get the best return. That's actually a very smart idea because if you're going to invest your resources, you might as well put it in something that's going to yield the greatest results. It's like there's this quote I remember reading a while. It was like the chains of habit are too light to be felt until it's too heavy to be broken or something like that. And it's like these day-to-day boring, repetitive habits or tasks that you do over time, like compounds to something that's hard greater that becomes a part of your identity. And I know identity is something we'll come to in just a moment, but it's like that habit initially is just an action, seamless, I'm sorry, like innocent action, isolated, but done over time becomes part of your identity and a much larger force to be reckoned with. So, yeah. Yeah, go ahead and hit on that, on how he, before he gets into the frameworks and tactics of how to create good habits, he anchored it around identity and why that is important before doing this. What were your notes on that? Yeah, so there's like a bottoms up approach. It's like, which habits do I want to do or like build or breed for that matter? And there's a top down approach, which is like, what's my identity? Who am I? And then what habits do I need to have? Kind of matches that identity, right? So example of Kobe Bryant and all those other people, they come up with their identities that they're a winner, that they didn't go the extra mile. So doing the 1,000, shots make sense or reaching the 1,000 leagues when they're at 700, whatever, and they're tired, right? Because their their identity tells them that doing that extra work is part of who they are. And it's like, who kind of going back to that point that you brought up, by the end of the year, who do you want to be? What, what, like, what kind of business do you want to have? And like kind of reverse engineering, what habits match that identity? So if you want to be like the person who runs his business on autopilot and that's the identity like you're like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a well-crafted, extremely well-built business. Like what kind of person do you need to be, or what kind of habits do you need to be, need to have to be that person? So I feel that's a, a much smarter approach because you start bottoms up, you agree to have random habits that maybe don't match your identity. And it's much easier, more attractive to know who you're trying to become. I think that's something you'll definitely stick to, stick with, I should say, in the long term. Yeah, and I launched a simple example of the two types of people that will do have it's the one where it will work and the one that will work. It's a distinction in identity. If you're like, oh, I'm trying to quit smoking, I'm not going to smoke the cigarette this weekend or whatever that would be, versus the person who says, I don't smoke like, or I don't smoke anymore. And there's a clear, like, nuanced difference in the two identities of those phrases. And the latter is the one that that can actually work. And so as you're wanting to go on the tactics of how to have the best habit and and the hit your goals, you want to kind of take a step back and think through, and what what is the identity that that I have or that I want to have? And how do the the habits align with that? And that in itself is like a worthwhile exercise to go down because you want to make sure you have that alignment. Yeah, and your identity also has like a very powerful gravitational force, right? So if you fall off, let's say you're a bodybuilder and you're suddenly very fat, your identity is still that of a bodybuilder. So like your actions will kind of pull you back to that identity that you have. It's like, you know, they, they say that people kind of regain the, the weight that they've lost. So even though they've kind of done the, the work, 
the exercise that got them to that final destiny, they're still a fat person inside. So they'll kind of return back to that old identity. Their old habits will creep back in. So it's definitely a powerful force and uh, very useful, something to keep in mind. Yeah. The other big thing was this idea of don't break the chain. And he gave the example of Jerry Seinfeld. He always writes, like every day he will dedicate time to writing. And it's not about quality, it's about quantity and how you can miss once, but you can't miss twice. And then James Clear goes on to talk about, it's not about the good days and having good workouts. It's about the bad days and not missing and, and showing up. Because I even felt that it was like January 2nd this year. I did not have the mojo, but I was like, I'm going to go do the workout. I'm going to, you know, I didn't have that many meetings in the afternoon. I could have just like sat on the couch and done something. It was like, no, I need to start cranking out stuff. And it wasn't the best work, but I got the work done because I was like, okay, you can't miss on day one, right? You you, you got to show up on those bad days when you, when you don't have the mojo. Yeah. The only thing I'd say about that, that's a little dangerous. And I've done this in the past to like, I don't know if you know, art 75, it's if you break the chain once you really take a hit, it's demoralizing. I may never want to get back on that. So don't be careful about that for sure. Yeah. And even like during the holiday break, I, I did the workout for like a week and then coming back into it, I was like, man, just missing one week was, it felt like I, it was a year, but it's, it's interesting how the, the consistency is, is key to, to all of this. Yeah. All right. So what, what would you say like is your, we'll, we'll, we'll give up this path actually. What's the thing you did not agree with with this book? Yeah, let's just throw it about that. Yeah. I, I need you to be biased first yeah. if you want to hear it. Yeah, let's hear it. I'll open it. Let's so, hear it. So this is what I think he missed on. It makes sense to make this book for people, for consumers that are trying to make habits around smoking or working out or, or hitting goals. However, I think the missed opportunity is coming up with like a habit system that a business could run. He should have done a volume two, Atomic Habits, for businesses on how to create the right cadence of actions and inputs at a company to re- to achieve your desired outcomes. It could be a you know a, a V2 that's aligned with EOS or it's its own system because he could have done that. Our company would have definitely adopted that. He could have launched a consulting agency off of it, sold it to McKinsey for a hundred million dollars. That's what I, I think he should do next is is make the version for a company and make that operating system. You know, surprisingly, the one system that I think comes closest to what you just described from my experience is the one thing. And the reason I say that is they have a system built in, and this is actually built for real estate agents who need to have, so that their business by definition is repetitive, they need to have what you call it weekly, like a number of calls that they have to make a week or number of outreach. So it helps them track, create the systems of the routines for that. And it's very trackable. I feel that that's probably the closest. And it also very much combines with the, well, like the system that you need to essentially follow to achieve goals. So that's by far the closest, but you're right. It's definitely an opportunity. Maybe you should pitch it to him be a co-author on that. That's definitely a way to get, get fame by, by association. So in for, it's there for the taking. Like how does this match up with other 
it's not a true system. It's just more of a book around habits and gives you frameworks. But how does this align with other goal setting or habit systems that you check out? Because I know you're kind of a nerd in the space from, you know, GTD to run your personal stuff to EOS being the entrepreneur operating system. What were your thoughts on this compared to some of those other systems you're familiar with? I actually don't think they overlap much to take GTD. For example, GTD is more of like getting your life under control. How do you track all your active projects and capture tasks? It's not so much about habit building. Yeah. So I don't see much, much of an overlap. At most, you might just track your habits in GTD. So like listing out your habits, tracking them, creating cues for yourself in your environment, things like that might be some overlap on that, but not much. Same thing with EOS. EOS is more of a, you know, a system for setting goals and keeping everyone on the same page, getting them on the same language. But uh, yeah, not much. I think the lessons here can be applied there where like, you know, the importance of systems, building key habits, the identity of the team and things like that, that could be implanted into those systems, but there isn't much overlap between these. So I think they're just talking to different audiences, solving different problems for the most part. So I think my, my main takeaway was around the idea of it's not about goals, it's about habits, it's about systems. I think everyone quotes goals are dumb. And it, it makes me think of uh, the the coach from the San Francisco 49ers, Walsh, around the score takes care of itself. If you have the right systems and process, everything will, will, will work out the way that you want them to. And for me, that's something that we're in like goal setting season. And yes, it's important to think through that, but none of that matters if you don't have the right process or system in place. That's actually a very good idea. The way you tie that in, you're totally right. That that, that that makes sense to me. Well, this was a fun one. It was a good forcing function to reread James Clear. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Really enjoyed it. I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where remotely talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. 
So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment, and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, Give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.